Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. Morning. So I was, wasn't at the meeting, and so I didn't know which topic I was going to get. And I got the best one, I think. So I just I lucked out. Mark was a little disappointed he didn't get it. I'm sorry. but But I got it. So I speak every week at our Vine neighborhood campus in downtown Kalamazoo, and I have a confession to make, and that is this. I have gone soft in that I only have to prepare a 20-minute message. Just 20 minutes. I mean, that's a good analogy, some scripture, a main point, and then I can even interact with the audience. It's so small, I don't have to use a microphone. I can get feedback, you know. We can have little mini discussions afterwards. It's just so comfortable. I love it. And then they're like, you have to preach at New Day and Vandalia. And if I model my sermons after Cameron, that means I have to have 55 minutes of material. That's a joke. We're only going to go for a half hour. But <laughs> so I, I, I managed to do it. I, I buckled down. I handled it. All right. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, let me speak as I ought today. Let me speak correctly and divide your word rightly and let everyone leave encouraged and joyful in Jesus' name. Let's start out by reading the Creed. Let's go ahead and bring that up. That's a good thing to do since I'm going to be speaking about it. Yeah, Let's all read this together. And I might read a little faster than some other people because I like to actually read with like oomph. Let's try it out. All right. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. This is my topic. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead. Pretty good. And the life of the world to come. Also really fun. Now, those are kind of my two main points. So this could be a really short message. I had the option of just standing up here and saying, hey guys, guess what? There's a resurrection of the dead, and there's a world to come. And I could read a bunch of verses on that and say, there it is in the Bible, and be done. But I thought to myself, self, that would probably be kind of boring and redundant. 
and I want something a little, a little more meaty than that. So what I'd like to do this morning is actually dive into the cultural soup. What was going on in Jesus' day? How would the Greeks have taken this news? How would the Jews have taken this news? That the resurrection was a real thing, and the world to come was a real thing. I'm, I'm currently going to seminary, and I've just started what is going to prove to be a very, very long educational journey, I think. Not quite as long as Mark's. How long is your plan? Six years? Man, bless him. Mine's four, and I feel like that's a long time. But I can sum up for everyone in this room, much cheaper than going to seminary, the number one lesson that Mark and I are learning. Would you guys like to like me to key in on this? It's one word. Context. Context is everything. So what we're going to learn today is the cultural context of Jesus' time and how they would have taken this. So let's dive right in. First of all, we need to know that in Jesus' time, to say you subscribed or ascribed to a philosophy was not so different from saying you were ascribing to a religion. The philosophies in, in antiquity, we would say back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, they give you a whole worldview. I mean, they taught you how you should act, how you should think about things, what's happening after death. And so all these philosophical people, they didn't just have ideas about life. They had ideas about life and the afterlife and how things worked, you know, spiritually, metaphysically, the whole deal. And we see that Jesus' time was littered with different philosophies. But kind of the unifying cultural backdrop, kind of the bedrock worldview belief of what a lot of them were were thinking was something called dualism. Isn't this exciting? Aren't you guys just into this already? This comes from Plato. All right? He was around several hundred years before Jesus, but he had this analogy, the analogy of the cave. Has anybody heard of this? Plato's cave? We have a few people. Basically, this kind of snuck in and became what people thought about matter and spiritual reality. And Plato taught that matter, well, everything we can see and touch, this this podium and this floor and even our bodies, is kind of a shadow, really, of the ultimate reality, guys. And the ultimate reality is this spirit realm, all right? And so people had this disconnect where matter was kind of bad, including our bodies, and the spirit realm, that was good. So everybody say, spirit good. Matter bad. And this was kind of the foundational in the background operating belief of Jesus' day that matter's not so great. Some people thought it was better than others, but nobody paid too much attention to it. But man, spiritual things, those were good. And then we have some philosophies that were prevalent in Jesus' day. Probably the most popular was one called Stoicism. Have we ever heard the phrase stoic, where you just don't have too many emotions? You know? And they actually cultivated that. These guys thought that if you cultivated reason and you cultivated your mind, then you were going to be prepared to die and join the mind that fills all things. Not very personal. No body, no resurrection. And they called this world soul, this thing that permeated everything, this podium, this floor. God is kind of everywhere, right? And this was this thing called logos, Does that sound familiar? Yeah. 
They believe that this world soul, this logos, who's just kind of, it's around, it's right here, guys. It's, there's some of it in me, there's some in my bag. So they're kind of pantheistic or panentheistic. God's everywhere, God's in everything. Right? But he's also, because of that, not personal. Nobody, no resurrection, figured into their plan. We're going to discover that Paul actually knows their poets and quotes them. Then we have some other people, Epicureans. We've all heard the, about the uh, let's just party because life is all there is people. That was kind of them. The Epicureans believed in God, but they believed that God was so distant, so out there, so separate from our affairs that you couldn't know him even if you tried. P.S. He doesn't give a rip about you. So eat both Pop-Tarts, hang out with your friends, try not to get in anybody's way. This is as good as it's going to get. And once you die, that's it. Okay? No physical resurrection. I mean, just kind of annihilationism, really. When you die, you're gone. And there were gods, but they're way out there. They don't care about you. You shouldn't care about them. Then we have all kinds of other different religions and philosophies, but none of them really cared much about the body or the material world. There's this trend that spirit is good and matter is, Chris, bad. That's right. Now we get to the number one philosophy, the number one biggest pain in the neck for Christendom in the early days, and that is Gnosticism. Who's heard of Gnosticism? Yay, a lot more hands. I feel more comfortable now. This is great. Okay. Gnosticism was kind of based on Plato's idea that the spirit was and matter was, but they changed a little bit, and they said the spirit is really good and matter is evil. Evil. And they had all these different schools of Gnostic people, and they all had kind of their own complicated and different mythologies, but if you had to compile them together, this is kind of what you'd get. This is their their big story, right? That there was an original high God. Sounds good so far. And this original high God created kind of these underling gods, right? Called aeons or eons. I don't know how to pronounce it. A-E-O-N-S. Aeons. Let's go with that. Sounds good. And together, this high God and his underling creations formed what they call, check this out, the fullness of the deity. This is the same phrase Paul uses of Jesus when he says, in him is the fullness of deity. See, it's a correcting term. Cultural context. Anyway, they believe that one of these aeons did a terrible thing. Rebelled against the high God and did something just really, really rotten. He created the material world. That's terrible. And that means that this whole existence that we can see is an act of evil rebellion. And we need to be free from it. Isn't that wild? And so they believe that you have this divine spark in you, but you need to come to enough knowledge or special knowledge to separate this nasty physical body that is evil from this divine spark so that when you die, finally, you can be free and join this high God. Isn't that wild? That's weird. So this is very real in in the gospel writer's day and in Jesus' day. And I know that was a lot of information But if we read the New Testament, we see them combating head-on these different philosophies. 
believing that matter is bad usually led to one of two conclusions. You either said to yourself, well, since my body is irredeemable anyway, I'll just be a complete hedonistic maniac. And hence Paul's lists, like, guys, what are you doing? Like, you can't go out and have drunken orgies and do all these crazy weird things. You can't do this. Well, they're coming from this mindset that the body doesn't matter. And so he's like, no, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body does matter. But then the opposite end of the spectrum are these people that think, well, I need to deny my body all the time. You know, things like food and water and certainly my sex drive have to be bad. So I'm going to be really spiritual and I'm going to shut that down. And then you have Paul answering them too. And he's like, what are you doing listening to these people that are like, don't taste, don't touch? You know, these people that are denying marriage. He's like, that's nuts. So you constantly see them battling both sides of the spectrum. Does that make sense? Awesome. Whew. Let's have an example. You guys ready for that? Check this out. And I am totally not worried about time. Is that all right with everybody? If I go for a half hour and I'm still pressing on, you can get up and leave. I won't be hurt. Maybe a little. Check this out. In Acts 17, Paul shows up in Athens. In Acts 17, verse 18, it says this a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. These guys are real. They're actually there. This is in Paul's face. It's something he has to deal with. And so they actually invite Paul to give a discourse, and they want to hear him formally. So Paul stands up before these Epicureans. Remember them? God is distant and unknowable. And these Stoics, God is everywhere and everything. And he begins to explain his faith. In verse 24, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. So all the Epicureans are like, awesome, distant God unreachable, unknowable, way out there. We like this Paul guy. But then he says this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Whoa, the Epicureans are like, not possible. Though he is not far from any one of us. What? Now the Stoics are like, oh, okay, maybe he's he's with us. He's not far. He's around. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. Those two quotes are from Stoic poets. Paul had read their stuff. So he starts out by saying, hey, Epicureans, God's kind of like this. And they're like, oh, we like you. And then he's like, oh, by the way, this is also true. And the Stoics are like, oh, maybe he knows what he's talking about. And then he says this. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past... God overlooked such ignorance. Has he just insulted them? Yes. And yet they're still listening. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He insulted them, and now he's demanding change. But they're still listening. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. They're still listening. He has given proof of this to everyone. And this is my point, by raising him from the dead. Next verse. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again. And with that, Paul left the council. 
They were hanging with him through everything until he mentioned what? The resurrection of the dead. Hey, agree with the people I disagree with. Insult me. Tell me you think I should change. All that is fine. But don't bring up this nonsense about the resurrection of the dead. Because we all know spirit good, matter bad. Right? Even the Jews. Later in Acts, Paul is back in Jerusalem where everything should go smoothly and well and swimmingly. He's back with his people and they call him to account. They think he's doing all this wrong stuff out there in the world and bad-mouthing them. And it gets so bad that he's actually in Roman custody. And the Romans have him in custody to keep him safe while he is addressing the leaders of his people. This is in Acts 23. Check this story out. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee. So he's splitting them up. Descended from Pharisees, and I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believed all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. Listen to this. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander, the Roman commander, was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces and actually got him and left. The Jews were so divided over this issue of resurrection that they're willing to actually have a, like, like Paul just mentions the idea and they're at blows with each other. And the, the encounter is so violent and so crazy that the Romans are afraid. And they're like, we got to get out of here. That's wild. Why is this such a big deal? Why is the resurrection of the dead such a big deal? The fact of the matter is, it is a big deal. It's what everything hangs on. And it is not coincidence that that is what the enemy would have us not believe. Amen? Some people believe that John... The gospel writer John wrote his apostle, his epistles and things from Ephesus as an older man. That's kind of what church history teaches. And then in Ephesus, there was a guy named Serinthus who was a Gnostic teacher. And he went head to head with John. So John has a tone of voice and a face to put with this kind of, this kind of conflict, right? And when he writes his gospel, he writes from a very confrontational corrective standpoint. How does he start out? In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. Right? Later in that chapter, the Logos became flesh. Who's he going after? He's going after the Stoics, right? He's correcting. Head on. He's not mincing words. He's saying, this is the way it is. And so we get a good point of view from John about the resurrection of the dead. Briefly. And I'll only hit the next part very briefly. If you're worried about the second half being 40 minutes, it's not going to be. How's everybody doing? Awesome. Check this out. This is how John treats the resurrection. John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene shows up. Breezes past the angels. It's a couple angels. They say some things. Jesus shows up. She thinks he's the gardener. And he says, Mary. Then in verse 17, this happens. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. 
for I have not yet ascended to my father. Interesting. Making a point. She's holding on to him. What do you hold on to? A body. That's crazy. He was dead. He was set free, right? Got rid of this evil body and then he shows up in one? Yeah. So he's back. And then it gets a little more persuasive in the same chapter. The evening of that first day of the week, the disciples are together with the doors locked. The doors locked. And Jesus shows up and says, how you guys doing? He actually says greetings. I think he's having fun. I really do. Joy comes from the Lord, right? I think he's messing with him a little bit. So he pops into the room with the doors locked. And then what does he say? He shows him his hands. And he shows him his feet and his side. Pops into the room like a spirit and says, check out this body. Then it gets even more persuasive. Same chapter. We have Thomas. Only John says Thomas is also called Didymus, by the way. Didymus is Greek for the same dang thing Thomas means. Twin. He's trying to make you think of him as Greek. Greek mindset. Greek background. Greek context. And he's the guy that says, unless I see his hands and his side and touch it, I will not believe. Okay, Mr. Greek, Mr. Greek worldview, what happens? A while later, they're in the same room, and Jesus shows up in the room and says, what's up, guys? And Jesus says, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas believes, and he says, blessed are those that haven't seen me and yet believed. That blessing really meant something, because in that worldview, you're preaching God in a body, a God who actually died and then comes back in a body again, they're going to think you are crazy. And if they don't think you're crazy, they're going to think you're a fool. They need that blessing. Blessed are you if you see and believe. And I love the whole last part of John. If you're preaching God in a body, what a way to end your book. And then by that God in a body, on the sand, with fish slime on his hands, from cooking and cleaning fish, over a fire, probably smelling like smoke, having a conversation with his disciples, taking care of their bodily needs, feeding them. Right? Here's the conclusion, guys. Spirit good. Body good. Body good. Everybody say body good. (laughs) If you get one thing from today for crying out loud, leave knowing that they have gone out of their way a hundred times. Paul, John, all of them to tell you that your body is not bad. Hunger is not less spiritual than singing. It's the way it's supposed to be. Okay? Yes, the curse has touched everything. But guess what? His plan isn't to set you free from it. His plan is to make it better. To remove the curse from all matter in your body too. I'm going to scoot forward real quick. Can we all see how this ties into the world to come? I probably don't even really need to say what I'm going to say. But if the body is good enough for God to wear, good enough for God to wear, is it possible that He intended the earth to be good enough to house heaven. Is that possible? And the answer is yes. Through much scripture and many analogies, 
we finally get to Revelation 21. But before I get there, let me say this. Heaven's going to be real good. Heaven is going to be full of the presence and the character of God himself. In the presence of God, there is fullness of... What? Not sobriety and, and mopiness? No? Joy sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Let me ask you another question. Do we really think that goofiness and laughter are from the devil? No. When you wake up and you're feeling spunky, is that part of the curse? No. And I think that all of that, all that the wordless energy and joy we have to look forward to in the presence of God in heaven. But I've got some news. Heaven is not our final hope. Our final hope is that all of heaven comes here to earth. Let's read Revelation 21. This is so awesome. As soon as I find it, that would be even more awesome. Yeah, Did I not print it out? That's crazy. Oh, no, another page back here. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. This is the ultimate fulfillment of Emmanuel. God with us. His plan is not to come for 33 years and then scoot. His plan is to be with us permanently. Boom. His dwelling will be with among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In quotes, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. for The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Does anyone here like sports? Does anyone here like beautiful things, like flowers, beautiful paintings? All right. How about real good food? The smell of bacon. Huh? Who likes picking up heavy things and setting them down and picking them up again for no reason? Yay! I like that too. Awesome. How about this one? Does anybody here like building things, creating things, making things? Some people think that eternity will be one everlasting worship song. And the people that want to do that, I don't think they'll be disappointed. Because between you and me, those angels that Isaiah saw circling God and saying, holy, 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 I don't think they would pick another job if it was available. I think they're doing exactly what they want to do. And more of us than we think might just want to fall at his feet and just praise him, maybe forever. But... I think we are selling God's eternity short if we know that he has such a high view of things in the body and yet we think that he's only going to have spiritual pleasures. Guys, it's going to be the best of this world and the best of heaven for all eternity. And I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty darn exciting. That is something to actually look forward to, is it not? Amen. Now I'm going to give it to Israel to close, and I hope I didn't go over too much. Thank you.